Wow. Big crowd. Thank you for coming, and good morning. Today I'm going to be reading from the book of John, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. It's going to be in Spanish first for our Spanish-speaking people, and then we'll do the English translation. El libro de Juan, capítulo 2, versos 6 y 7. Había allí seis tinajas de piedra para agua, de acuerdo con los ritos de los judíos para la purificación. En cada una de ellas cabía dos o tres medidas. Jesús le dijo, llena de agua las tinajas y las llenaron hasta el borde. John 2. Verse 6 and 7. This is the New English translation I'm reading. Now, there were six stone jar, water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the water jars with water. So they filled them up to the very top. Thank you, Hector. You're welcome. Can we thank Hector? This takes a lot of courage to do this. Thank you. Next week, he wants to preach. <laughs> I had to twist his arm to get him up here. This summer, we're, uh, we're talking about Jesus uh, under the theme identity, theft. And the question I keep raising each week and the other speakers that will be up here is, who is the real Jesus? Is he, um, is he what the world says he is? And so we're going to invite you. I want you to come with me on a journey each week to take a look at Jesus. And we're going to be looking at John. And each week, something different and unique about Jesus comes to the surface. So I want you to go with me on a journey, as I said last week, and pretend that uh, you've not heard of Jesus and he's brand new to you. And um, so you don't have all of the uh, baggage, good and bad, that has come through your lifetime of church. And just explore what it is that he says and does. And let's find out who he is. And then afterward... As Mark mentioned, when we have our communion time, we're going to have people up here that you can pray with. Uh, but if you're on that journey trying to figure out who Jesus is, I don't care if you've been in church all of your life or if you've never been in church. If you're on that journey, come up and talk to us. Have a conversation with us. What did you learn? And uh, let's talk about who this Jesus person really is, because he is central to the Christian faith. So today we're going to talk about the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. I'm going to read it for you, and I'm going to expose several questions, ask several questions that are kind of interesting to me. So John chapter 2 begins this way. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Okay, stop. We already have a problem. We only got one sentence into it. On the third day. But yet, if you look in John chapter 1, in verse 35, it says, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. So they're in Bethany across the Jordan. They're not in Cana. So in chapter 1, verse 35, this is the second day. So then in verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So this is the third day. But yet in John chapter 2, it says on the third day a wedding took place in Cana. Well, Jesus can't be in two places at the same time. So we have a problem. 
What is that all about? We'll come back to that. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. Okay, pause. Is that any way to treat your mother? (laughs) Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. That sounds a little harsh to me. I think we need to take a look at that. But we'll come back to that one too. So his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. Okay, hold on a second here. This is the third problem. He selected the six stone water jars that the Jews used for ceremonial washing. Now, you would expect him to say, well, where are the wine jars? Find the, find the jugs that they use, that they had the wine in that are empty. We'll just fill them up. No, but he says, pick the dish pans. The six stone water jars that they use for washing. Why did he do that? Fill them up to the brim. Verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine, the best wine, first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. Okay, hold on. What's Jesus doing making wine for a crowd that's already inebriated? You get the idea, this chapter is filled with lots of questions, isn't it? We have to answer some of these to figure out who this Jesus is. It's pretty amazing. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. So we're going to work our way back through this passage. And if we can answer those questions, I think you'll have a glimpse, perhaps a new and fresh glimpse of who Jesus is. The key to this passage, I think, is found in, verse, in chapter 1, in verse 18. No one has ever seen God at any time. No one has ever seen God at any time. But the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. He has revealed him. He has expressed to us very clearly who God is. And so whatever we do with this passage in chapter 2, it has to be God revealing himself to us through his Son. Let's pray. Father, help us in this passage to uh, look at these questions and some of this crazy stuff that's going on at the wedding of Cana. And help us to sort out, Lord, um, more clearly who your Son is. And uh, answer the questions that we often don't find in the press. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, weddings were a really big deal in the Jewish culture. Very big deal. It was, um, it was something that lasted a long time. I won't go into all the details of it, but uh, when we get later on to John 14, we'll answer more questions about it. But it was a very big event. And to run out of wine in the middle of this event was a cultural faux pas. It was a disaster. It was a way that brought shame to your name. And in this context, you were very careful not to do something that brought shame to your name. And so, right off the bat, we've got a problem.
But we know that Jesus and the disciples and his mother were invited. So that says something about um, their importance. They were known into, in the crowd, in, the, in that region. And the fact that they ran out of wine is probably not careless on the part of the headmaster. They probably had a lot of people come. And they weren't expecting it. Maybe they had a bigger crowd than they thought. But John opens up with a very intriguing phrase. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana. And I already pointed out that this isn't actually the third day, sequentially, because in the third day, he's in another part of the nation. And so what is John talking about? Well, in order to capture this phrase on the third day, you have to understand how Jewish theology works. Long, long time ago, at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, when they had just come out of uh, Egypt, uh, God said to Moses, prepare the Israelites for on the third day, I'm going to come down and meet them. It's kind of strange to think that um, they had not met God yet. This, this one true God. They had lived among the Egyptians and were very familiar with their pantheon of gods, but they had not met their God. They had seen his handiwork. They saw the ten plagues. The ten plagues had attacked ten of the major gods of Egypt. And our God showed the Egyptian leadership that uh, our God is bigger than your God. We now know those gods don't exist at all. So the ten plagues actually were attacks on ten of the key gods of Egypt. So Moses leads them out into the wanderings. Not quite into the wanderings. He leads them out of Egypt. And they're at the base of Mount Sinai. And God says, prepare the Israelites for in three days... I'm going to make myself known to them. I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to introduce myself. On the third day, the mountain shook, Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19, it says the people were standing right up against the edge of the mountain. And God said, be careful, don't touch the mountain or you'll die. And so the mountain started shaking. There was a smoke filled the air, lightning, thunder, and this trumpet blast so loud that the people were covering their ears. And then in Exodus 20, right after that, it said the people were on the other side of the valley. (laughs) What happened? They ran. That's what all of us would have done at the base of a mountain that's in an earthquake. That's what it felt like. They ran. They were scared. That's how God introduced himself to them. And then we have the very famous verse in Exodus 20, 20, where Moses said, Do not be afraid of God. Do not be afraid. God has put his fear within you so that you would know that he is God. That's where we get the idea of what it means to fear God. It's not being afraid of God. It's having this very deep respect for who God is. If our God can shake Mount Sinai and scare us half to death, then the other gods in the region, they don't stand a chance. On the third day, it says, God revealed his glory. The lightning flashes, the power, the authority, the raw energy of who God really is, they felt it. They saw it. The ground shook and they went running. That was on the third day. That's how God revealed his glory. That became a key term in Jewish theology. It's much like we have that in our culture. When I say 4th of July, what do you think of? Fireworks? <laughs> what does that stand for? Independence Day, right? 4th of July, you know what that means. So in Jewish theology, the third day stood for the, God, that, uh, the inbreaking of the one true God into our world to display His glory. 
That gives us a clue what's going to happen at John. In John 2 at the wedding of Cana. On the third day, a wedding took place. This sets us up for what's coming. What's about to happen. It's going to be phenomenal. Is it going to be a mountain shaking? What else happened on the third day? Rose from the dead. There's another. Anytime you see the third day in Scripture, you can anticipate God breaking into our world and demonstrating His glory. That's what it means. Every time you see it. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana. This is when God decided to break into our world. And we know that this is Jesus' first miracle. Pretty amazing. So, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Why would she say that to her son? I think she knows who he is. I think she knows he's the Messiah. She had certainly been told that at his birth. And so, her good friends, who were the hosts of the wedding, are in danger of being embarrassed. And so, she goes to the her son... It's the only solution she knows, and so they have no more wine. And Jesus gives us one of the most amazing statements. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, in our culture, this sounds a little harsh, but in the Jewish culture, it actually wasn't as harsh as it sounds. I think what's happening here is Jesus is transferring, for the first time, his, he's been under his parents, specifically his mother, and now he's reversing the relationship and saying, I'm now under my father, It's much like when we send our children out. And she got it. She got it. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come to reveal myself in my fullest glory. And so what does she say? Do whatever he tells you. She becomes the first person in John to demonstrate a very simple faith. She took a back seat. Up until this time in his life, most likely, she didn't do that. And he was under her authority, and he's no longer he's no longer under her authority. He's now under the authority of his father. So she takes a back seat, and she says, do whatever he tells you. And she demonstrates a very simple faith. So the first question I have for you is, when, you, when you're reading this story, do you, do you want to be like his mother or not? You know you have moms and sons... Or moms and children, they have this kind of this coded language that goes on between them. And she just relinquished control and stepped back and said, you can trust my son. He knows what's right. It's a very powerful moment, I think, in Jesus' life. And then I think in her life. She will appear later on in John. We'll talk more about that. So then nearby stood these six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said, fill the water. Fill these jars with water. They filled them to the brim. He didn't say fill the wine containers that are empty. Fill these particular ones. And John is giving us very exacting detail here. There's six of them. They're stone. And they're used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. Jesus got in a lot of trouble in the Gospels for not washing his hands. As the Pharisees attacked the disciples. How come your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat? So in the law... Uh, they had these purification rites. And what these purification rites were designed to do, I believe, were to teach people that they really needed cleansing. So they had this practice where they would wash their hands in a sequence. Okay? 
And it was designed to teach people that I, I need cleansing. You ever feel that way? I do. <clears throat> you know your own souls. You know if they feel kind of dirty a little bit. How do you cleanse them? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says, If you for you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleansing comes through forgiveness. By the way, it's easier to apologize than it is to uh, confess. You ever notice that with your children? Your children will say they're sorry, but it's very hard to say I'm wrong. That's true, honestly, with me as well. And I suspect with many of you. And so these purification rites were there on purpose to teach people that they needed to be cleansed. They were anticipating in the law the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, when God would express himself and cleanse us. And what had the Jews done with it? Like all the good parts of the law, they had said, you're not like us, so stay out. So the Gentiles, they don't clean themselves, so stay out. Jesus, how come your disciples don't cleanse themselves? You know, let's put distance between us and this, this self-proclaimed rabbi who calls himself the Messiah, Jesus. Let's, let's put distance here because he doesn't follow the law. His people don't cleanse themselves. So Jesus, by pointing to these six stone jars, is striking right at the heart of Judaism. Right at the core. You say you obey the law, but you don't really. He's striking right at the very center of their identity. By the way, that's common for Jesus to do that. He picked the dishpans. Why? I think it was to expose to all these people, whoever bothered to look, that the cleansing rituals did absolutely nothing except remove dirt. They had missed the fundamental reason why these rituals were there to begin with, to teach us that we need a Savior. Something's wrong with the soul. So that's what he does. So they, uh, they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And I think here, I think he's pausing with a smile on his face, twinkle in his eye. And he did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the best wine. Okay, pause. The best wine. Everything about this passage is speaking to Jewish theology, the history of the Old Testament. All the rabbis, all the great teachers throughout time recognize that when the Messiah comes, all these symbols would be present. Wine was called a blessing. Honestly, that's why in communion we have wine. When the Messiah comes, it'll be a blessing. The, uh, the bread, by the way, symbolized, it goes back into the Old Testament to the grain offering, and it symbolized God's care for us, his provision. He always takes care of us. And the wine symbolized his blessing. He loves to bless us. So wine became one of the symbols when the Messiah comes, there will be wine and dancing. The wedding feast itself is a symbol. How many times have you read and heard the great wedding feast. We're the bride of Christ. All that imagery. Because the wedding is the one time where everybody stops and dances and celebrates. And it's a picture of what life is like. 
in the kingdom. A bride has found a husband who loves her deeply and just honors her. And that's what we are in Christ. So this, this all the way through here, this imagery in this passage is all talking about the Messiah, Jesus. So it's not an accident that Jesus chose the wedding at Cana to reveal his glory for the first time and to reveal who he truly is. God. And breaking into our world. Verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. We're going to celebrate communion in just a second. In fact, I'm going to invite the communion servers and those who want to stand up here and pray, the men and women, to kind of make their way down. And, um, and I want you to pause and reflect for a moment. Are you willing to follow this Messiah wherever he goes? More importantly, are you willing to follow Jesus wherever he takes you? Because the journey's different. Jesus is not some simple Galilean peasant. As some would claim, he's not a stoic who's dispassionately interested, as some would claim. He's not weak and powerless. His very first thing he did was to stand up and do a miracle and signal to all those who would listen, God has arrived. God is here. What did John 1.18 say? That the only begotten Son, who is himself God, has revealed the Father. And so what we see in the wedding of Cana is we see Jesus doing the very thing that he was supposed to do. It wasn't an accident that he showed up at the wedding. That was on purpose. So he could fulfill all that long history of tradition about the wine. This new wine had come. The world had never seen it. God had inbroke into our world, and the world had never seen that before. It's the first time in the history of the world that we see God with us. And by, that's, that's, by the way, that's what his name means. Jesus, Yahweh saves. That's the name of God, the one true God. Do you believe that? This is the Jesus who we serve, whom we serve. He's powerful. He's courageous. He has a twinkle in his eye. He loves a good party. Everywhere you look in the Gospels, if there's food, Jesus is present. He's my hero. He's not afraid of stopping and having a fantastic meal or banquet. That's the God that we serve. We're going to invite you down to come down and share in communion together. Let me give you some thoughts. Let me take. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, right? And he broke it. What did he say? This is my body, broken for you. So when you come forward, what you're going to hear me say, body of Christ, broken for you. That you might find forgiveness. And then after the dinner, he took the cup. And what did he say? This is my blood shed for you. A little bit later, he says, this represents the new covenant, a new, an entirely new relationship that we've not had before, where we can genuinely love one another. That's what this means. This is what this is all about. And every time we do this, we celebrate his death. The breaking of bread is a key part of Christian life because this is where we remember Jesus who is himself God, 
who has revealed to us the Father in the fullest way by doing incredible things. So I'm going to invite you to come down, and I want you to um, uh, take some time, either there or down here, and just, just remember what you're celebrating. Reflect on it. Uh, don't come alone unless you really want to. It's appropriate to come alone if you feel you want some time with the Lord. Grab a friend. Grab a visitor. Grab somebody you don't know. Maybe there's somebody here that you're in tension with this week, and, and you just kind of got off on the wrong foot somehow. Go grab that person and say, can we just have communion together and celebrate it and let it slide into the past? I also am going to invite you to pray about uh, giving. I'm, I'm a new pastor, as most of you know, and I'm just learning what we do with your money. It is fantastic. I was looking and doing the math, and over 20% of what we take in, we give out. That's the highest church I've ever been in, highest number. I think I shared last week, I, I read that we gave over 4,700 meals to needy families last year. I just stopped and praised God. I love being part of a church like that. So don't be afraid to be generous. We'll use your money well. We'll use it well. So let me pray, and then let me invite you to come and share. And uh, remember to stop and pray with somebody. Father, we do lift this up and say thank you for giving us the honor of remembering your son Jesus and um, celebrating his accomplishments, his death on our behalf. Help us, Lord, to believe. As uh, somebody in the gospel said, I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. And Father, wherever we are on that journey of belief, help us to just draw a little bit closer this week to you and uh, enjoy being with you and with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.